Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. We do serve such an awesome God and it's awesome to bless his name together and wherever you are, I pray that you would uh, bless his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can bless your name, that you have made yourself known to us as the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, how you revealed yourself to them, how you spoke to Moses from a burning bush and led the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand through the Red Sea into the land of promise, that you appeared on Mount Sinai and gave them your laws, that you protected and provided for your people abundantly and when they sinned against you, you led them to captivity, but you brought them out again and caused them to rebuild in Jerusalem and have made them a mighty people. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus came knowing that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but also he had sheep of another fold that he would bring, that he must bring. The Gentiles that you have uh, throughout the world loved, called to come to you, and Jesus called to all and invited us to come. And in hearing his voice as your sheep, we have come, Lord. And we pray that many more would hear your voice, that even through this message, they would hear your voice and come to you and find salvation and rest and the hope of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, the new life, the abundant life that you've come to give. And so, Lord, we bless you and we thank you for this time and for your word and for this opportunity to study and read it together and we pray that it would minister to our lives and we would apply it faithfully and walk in obedience to it and just glorify your name. Lord, you are awesome and you are good in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great challenges we face in life is to make sense of suffering. Some find comfort in saying everything happens for a reason. But even if that is true or when that is true, we may never know what that reason is. And it's not up for us to decide if the reason is one we think worth suffering for. We understand the concept between we reap what we will sow and um, assume there must be a cause for some adverse effect. We see this in building. When a building inspector sees a large crack in a wall or water leaking from the ceiling, there's a reason behind the damage. They will uh, look and see if that's caused by a burst pipe or a cracked slab or a foundation. And then they will decide whether it was an engineering flaw or poor workmanship or a mechanical fault. And it's one thing to say why a slab has broken, but knowing that doesn't mean that you can fix it. Sometimes it's not salvageable. It has to be totally torn up and done again. More important than knowing the reason for suffering is to rest on the foundation of God's goodness. That, that knowledge is the key to drawing near to God and trusting him even in the hard times of life. Knowing that the reason for your failing eyesight is an ge incurable genetic condition doesn't give you hope that you will see again. The hope is found in knowing God, that he knows, that he sees, he loves us with an everlasting love and that that peace and that abundant life is available to all who trust in him in all seasons of life. Please turn to Job 2 in your Bibles. Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God. He avoided evil and God said, have you considered my servant Job when Satan came before him? You know, he's blameless, upright. He, he does what's right and he avoids what's evil. And Satan says, well, yeah, you've protected him and his household. You make the works of his hands fruitful. 
But if you touch him, touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. And so God gave permission to Satan to take his wealth, to destroy his livelihood, to kill his servants and even his 10 children. In deep grief and sorrow of soul, Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of worshiping God, excuse me, instead of cursing God in his pains, he worshiped God. He blessed the Lord. And what a example, what an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness to uphold his people and to give them the faith required to rely upon him. We pick up our passage in Job chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Now, we're not told how long it was after Job lost his wealth and his children when the angels presented themselves before the Lord again. As in chapter one, the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? What have you been up to? And he just says, walking to and fro in the earth. He doesn't mention anything about Job doesn't mention anything about what he did to Job. His pride would not accept defeat with humility. And God brings up Job again. He says, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? God doesn't say, I told you so, but says, look, Job, you afflicted him. You caught, you incited me against him without cause. And yet he holds fast to his integrity. He's blameless. He fears God. He shuns evil. It shows that Job loved God more than his wealth, more than his family. He trusted God for security and for life more than all his possessions that he had lost. And God said, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. That word integrity, it just means innocence in the Hebrew. If a building collapses and the concrete slab has retained its integrity, that means the outer part's still solid, there's no cracks, there's no damage at all, the fault does not lie in the slab. It lies somewhere else. Webster defines integrity as entire, unbroken, unimpaired, moral soundness or purity, incorruptness, uprightness, honesty. Integrity comprehends the whole moral character. Faith in God, it kept Job whole inside and out. He was a broken man. He was a grieving man, but he held fast his integrity. He hadn't been um, destroyed by what happened, though his life in many ways was destroyed, and he felt it was destroyed. Integrity, it showed that his sacrifices to God and his prayers made to him, it wasn't just something he did on the outside to obtain favor from God, but it was true in the inner man. So there was a, a connection, an agreement between the way he lived and the way he was, who he was. Integrity is shown when we do what we know to be right, whether or not we are seen by others. It's like everything he said, everything he did was before God. 
And that integrity was kept by him. A consistency of character. That's what's being talked about here. Job blessed the Lord when he was rich and when he was poor. He continued to see God worthy of praise, whether he enjoyed record profits or was shocked by the worst news imaginable. And it really wasn't imaginable. He couldn't have predicted that this could have ever happened to him, that he would lose everything. One of the best antonyms of integrity is deceitful. Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Judas, he showed deceit by betraying Jesus with a kiss for money. He gave that outer sign of affection, but his inside, the things he was thinking, how he was going around Christ to betray him, it showed that he did not have integrity. A true friend, as this passage says, is willing to inflict pain with a rebuke and remains faithful to others even when a mistake is made. A surgeon will cut and wound with the aim to heal and restore, wholeness being the aim. God said he was incited by Satan to destroy Job without cause. And God uses the same word that, that Satan did uh, in the first chapter where he says, does Job fear God for nothing? That word nothing. Job was not made to suffer because he was guilty of committing a particular sin. There's a lot of scriptural examples of people who did suffer and whose lives were cut short because of sin. But uh, the book of Job shows us that the wisest and most righteous among men cannot know God's plans or reasons behind them because it was truly without cause why he suffered. There wasn't any correlation between what Job did and how he was being punished for it. Sometimes there isn't a reason. We think there must be a reason. There must be a reason, something that I've done, something someone else has done that, that we suffer. But even if we have that sort of insight, it doesn't mean we have a solution. It doesn't mean we can fix anything. It doesn't mean we can comfort the hurting. Satan had no just cause for Job to be buffeted, but God had redemptive plans by allowing it to unfold. A common response when we suffer is to ask why, to think that relief depends upon us figuring out what to do or to fix the problem, to discover the cause, like to work, to fix it, to return to better days. But friends, think about it. Could Job, by working, fix what had happened? Could he change the fact he had lost all his flocks, his herds, his 10 children in a day, his servants? Instead of obsessing over reasons why God might have allowed suffering for you or others, consider the goodness of God, how he is righteous and above reproach. There's plenty of reasons we can look to in our own lives why, when we sin. It, it's pretty easy to do, to find sin in us. But look to God who is all righteous, all good, kind, compassionate, merciful. And consider the pains of those who are suffering instead of judging them and assuming you know why or thinking you, imagining we know why they suffer. Seek to comfort. Seek to reach out with compassion. God singled out Job for being blameless and upright and a man of integrity. God noticed Job for his uprightness, not for his wickedness. 
And if God would notice Job for his uprightness, shouldn't we consider God who is greater and the most righteous of all, right? Without any fault. In the fear of God, we can lift our eyes above the pain, above the loss to the Lord who always remains good. And of course, doing that practically is really hard. The only way we can do it is through faith in him and his goodness. Job 2 verse 4. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Satan's first accusation was Job only worshiped God because of the benefits he had received from him, that he had made him wealthy and blessed the work of his hands. And then after being proved wrong, uh, said, well, Job didn't curse you because you didn't go far enough. He hadn't suffered physically himself. He implies that God didn't go far enough. There it wasn't, therefore, it wasn't a fair trial of Job, a real test. And the devil said, this, if he's allowed to suffer physically, and we see even the fear of suffering physically can influence men to give up what is most precious. Don't know if you've seen the movie, The Princess Bride, but there's a scene where uh, the man in black and this trio of men, Fezzik and Inigo, they're approaching the castle gate and there's one guard left guarding the gate. And uh, the man in black, Wesley says, give us the gate key. And the guard says, I have no gate key. And then the giant is told, Fezzik, tear his arms off. And the man quickly produces the key on a chain for his neck and says, oh, you mean this gate key? And they take the gate key and enter the castle. So just the threat, just the chance of physical pain was enough to make this man show his lack of integrity. He was not going to die for his king. He was not going to risk any injury to do his duty. Instead, just handed it over. And Job's saying, uh, Satan's saying, you make Job feel pain not just threaten him, but you inflict pain upon him. Oh, he'll curse you to your face. People are able to keep a strong front until they feel their life is in danger. We see examples of this in the Bible. Abraham, he told Sarah to lie that she was his sister instead of being his wife because he didn't want to die for her. He didn't want to become a target that someone would assassinate him to have her as wife. David, he decided it was better for Uriah the Hittite to die in battle than for his scandalous affair to be exposed. Peter, he denied knowing, even knowing Jesus with an oath when there was not a threat upon his life sitting around a fire because he was ashamed to be uh, grouped in as one of Jesus' disciples. Satan doubled down on his previous statement. If you afflict Job personally, he will Fold. He will curse you to your face. And God said, behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. God allowed Satan to afflict Job, but there were strict limits placed upon him. Job would feel like he was dying. He would wish that he was never had been born, as we'll see next week. But God remained faithful to help him and preserve Job's life. He had been delivered into Satan's hand, but he had not been taken from God's hand who was holding him who was going to uh, strengthen him to endure, though he suffered. God is faithful 
to preserve life. He's the author of life, the giver of it, and he is the resurrection and the life. Job famously would say of God in Job 13, 15, and 16, though he slay me, speaking of God, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He, shall, he also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Blessed is the man who knows God, who fears God, who trusts him. Trusting God precedes knowing him as he is. Those are entwined together. All who believe God will be our salvation know he's the only one to whom we must turn. If you don't trust God, you cannot know him. But if you trust him, you begin to know him and grow in that knowledge. Picking up our passage in Job 2 verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We're told that Satan went out from the presence of God and struck Job with painful boils. That same word for boils is found in Deuteronomy 28, 7 that reads, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Exodus 9, 8 through 12, it describes these itching, painful boils where they broke out on man and livestock. That was the sixth plague that God visited upon Egypt and its people. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture about how we would define Job's condition with current medical terms. I don't believe it can be definitely known what he suffered. But what we do know is from the crown of his foot, uh, crown of his foot, yeah, it's great. The crown of his head to the soles of his feet, he was covered with these painful boils. We read that Pharaoh's magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils they suffered. And Job wasn't standing with these boils on the soles of his feet. The only thing he could do was sit in a pile of ashes, scratch himself with this piece of pottery. And we don't know why he sat in the ashes. We don't know if it's to show his grief because people would uh, sit in ashes when they were grieving or the ash provided some relief to his wounds or like a leper, he lived in an unclean place where the rubbish would be burned. The pain, the stench, the itch, it was excruciating. It was awful. His humiliation was complete. This man who was the greatest man of the East is now sitting in a pile of ashes covered with boils and just scraping himself with a piece of pottery. And as he's sitting there, there's people who are passing by him and they're mocking him. They showed no pity or care for the man who lost everything. And one might think that Job had undying support from his wife during this time and, or his sympathy, but she also was included in Satan's arsenal to drown him in despair. She said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, we should extend grace and mercy to her. She, along with her husband, had lost her wealth. She lost her children. Suddenly, her husband was deathly ill. 
Remember, Job, his wife, his friends, they were not in on what was going on in heaven. They didn't know what was happening from the looking at the situation. She's saying he's in so much suffering. He, he's just, it's just beyond understanding. He, he'd be better off to, to die and not have to suffer like this because she loved him and cared for him. And she imagined death would be better than living. At least his grief would be over. Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary. She urges him to renounce his religion, to blaspheme God and dare him to do his worst. Curse God and die. Be thine own deliverer by being thy own executioner. End thy troubles by ending thy life. These are two of the most horrid of all Satan's temptations. Nothing is more contrary to natural conscience than blaspheming God, nor to natural sense than self-murder. It's foolish to curse the only God who can save us body and soul. Job and his wife, they were overwhelmed with the things Job suffered. Being overwhelmed, it prompts us to either bless God or to curse him. She wasn't necessarily suggesting he kill himself, but that he give up his faith and he curses God. Because if this is the way he treats those who love him, who serve him, is he really worth following? That's implied in what she's saying. But Job, he's not entertaining that for a second. Her words were out of character. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. He doesn't call her a fool, but even wise can say foolish things. Words that don't take God or his goodness or his character into account. Job said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Should we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Job recognized that his possessions, his family, his wife, his health, they were all gifts from God. He, he delighted to receive those good things. Is it just to receive what man deems to be good and to refuse adversity or evil from the same good God? The righteous character of God, it's not sullied because man does not agree with his judgments or his choices or his reasonings. I mean, his, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We know an apprentice ought to listen to the directives of the foreman. A student ought to be silent when the professor is teaching. A child is taught to obey his parents. And when they receive a gift that they didn't ask for, they're supposed to say thank you to show good manners and their appreciation of the thought. A person in court there to dress the judge as your honor. And Jesus taught his followers to love one another as he loves them. And this principle applies that whatever God gives is good. We ought to receive it from his hand, even if we don't deem it to be good. If we will not receive what God gives us, how can we say that he's our master? How can we say that we trust him? When Job was wealthy, people would have been happy for the scraps that fell from his table how much more should we desire to receive all that God has to give us? I mean, you think about a beggar in the position that Job was in now. He would have been happy for any help from Job. And Job realized that he needed God. And especially right then in the midst of his sorrow. I think about God giving each tribe of Israel boundaries of land and their lands were different. You had some rocky, hilly lands. You had lands that had rivers flowing through them. They all had a unique set of boundaries and obstacles and enemies to overcome. They didn't have a choice of what their inheritance was going to be. 
Their choice is if they would be obedient to enter in and drive out the inhabitants of the land and possess the land that God had given them. That was the question. It wasn't, is this good enough to receive from God? No, it was all a gift from God. And it's so critical that we connect God's goodness with his sovereignty. We usually use the word good in a very subjective way where we say, coffee sounds good right now. Well, it doesn't sound good to someone who doesn't like the smell or taste of coffee. It never sounds good to them, right? Being good, that is a specific thing in the Bible where only God is good. There was a person who came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, instead of answering the question, he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Being good is beneficial in any sense as opposed to evil. And God is good in every way. He's the only source of goodness. Job realized that God gives what man views as good or evil. We are obligated to receive that from him because he is God, because he is good. And instead of showering us with platitudes or commands, Job's experience illustrates a very important lesson. And this is key. When we accept all adversity as from God, he can cause it to be better for us than the things we think are good in themselves. That's how good God is. He can take something that's intended for evil and turn it to something good that will make our character better, more like his own. We can live the life God's given us desiring what we see as the best for ourselves. But if you think about it, a lot what has strengthened your faith and deepened your walk with him and built Christian character, it has not been the fun things or the easy things, but the hard things, the things that test you. That's where character is built. We see it as good when the money multiplies, yet adversity can lead to eternal riches when we realize God has a kingdom of wealth that we can enter into because we are poor spiritually. Fame or money, it cannot keep a person from despair and considering suicide, but evil can make a person turn to God with fervent tenacity. So God is able to redeem those things that even Satan intends for evil. Turn to what King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 2. This is what he wrote. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the songs of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. There's nothing wrong with laughter and happiness. These are gifts from God. The point Solomon makes, though, is that sorrow can have a greater impact on improving and refining our character more than laughing at jokes. We would rather listen to our favorite song than rebuked by the wise, right? We don't like being told that we're wrong or have made a mistake. But great good comes from heeding their wisdom. I don't see this passage in Ecclesiastes as appropriate to write in a card expressing condolences. 
But we must realize that the painful circumstances we face that bring mourning and sorrow and sadness and rebuke that we would rather avoid, God is good to redeem them for our good and for our benefit. We like the idea of feasting, of making merry, of singing victory songs. Yet the good life we seek for ourselves, it doesn't make us better people. It doesn't make us more like Christ. Uh, And God sometimes employs affliction and adversity to move us toward that end, to strengthen our faith, to change us for good. And when I say for good, more like God and forever. Job 2 verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted, up, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. The report of all the adversity Job faced had reached the ears of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they coordinated a time to all go to Job, to visit him, to mourn with him, to comfort him. And we don't really know exactly much about these people except what Job's written here. And we'll read about Elihu who spoke later. Now, Laura has helped by putting together a slide of the overview of the book of Job because I wanted to just point out how the book is organized So as we go through it verse by verse, so we see the introduction is the first couple chapters. Then Job speaks. And then there's this um, three addresses that each of his friends make. And Job then rebuts those questions. He answers their points. And uh, Zophar only has two addresses. Then Elihu, he sums up all the arguments on both sides. And really this book is a it's like a discussion that we could read straight through in less than 45 minutes. We're going to spend many weeks going through it. And I'm going to go at a bit of faster pace than usual so that we can hopefully keep the conversational aspect of it going. But then after Elihu speaks, God overrules everybody. And then it concludes in chapter 42. What's so remarkable about this book is Job's friends, they speak truth fit to be included in God's word, yet they were mistaken about Job. They thought he was suffering because of some sin and that the, his, his adversity was the truth coming out about him, which wasn't true at all. But the things that they say about God and the things they say about how the wicked will be judged, they're very true. We should commend Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for their kindness to voluntarily come to Job with the aim of comforting him. Reading through the book, it shows that their desire to help him was a rare exception. Now, I'm going to point this out now because as we get into the story, as we get into their discussion, Job and his friends are at odds with each other. They came to comfort him and Job says, you guys are miserable comforters because they weren't listening to him. You ever heard of kicking a man while he's down? Well, that's what happened to Job. 
That was his experience in Job 16.10. He says this as he's sitting in ashes. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. I mean, can you imagine? Here he is sitting in ashes and he's being punched up. He's being mocked. He says in Job 30 verse 1 that he was mocked without mercy. Turn to Job's words of how God afflicted him in Job 19, 13 through 18. So in Job's mind, he, he's like, I'm facing this adversity from God. And this is painful. Read this, Job 19, 13. He has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise, and they speak against me. Job did not have people rallying around him to help him. He wasn't shown compassion or pity. He felt ignored. It's like my own relatives, my closest friends, they're... They're avoiding me, and I'm like a stranger to people whom I once knew. I talk to my servant, and she ignores me like I'm not even here. People in this culture, they were taught to respect those who were older, but even the children were mocking him and laughing at him. People who were jealous of his great wealth before, now they took the time to, to point out how, how far he had fallen. And How are you feeling now, Job? At a distance, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they see this man sitting in the ashes, and they are horrified. To, they don't recognize him, and they realize that's Job. They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat down with him for seven days and seven nights. They said nothing. And can you imagine that? It's like they, they traveled all that way to meet with him, and then it was just so overwhelming and they didn't want to add to his sorrow by saying a word. And so they just sat with him. What could they say in the face of such physical and mental and emotional anguish? Adam Clark wrote this. They believed him to be suffering for heavy crimes. And seeing him suffer so much, they were not willing to add to his distress by invectives or reproach. Job himself first broke silence. Can you imagine sitting with someone for seven days, not saying a word? They hoped to comfort him. In time, it would come out that they were miserable comforters because they didn't listen to him and they kept trying to fix him. It's like they were focused on fixing Job and righting the wrongs rather than just grieving with him, supporting him and encouraging him. It's one thing to see someone in grief. It's another thing to be grieving like that yourself. One reason believers can receive adversity from the hand of God is that God is the God of comfort, of all comfort. Job was afflicted without a cause. His friends' attempts to comfort him were hindered because they assumed they knew the cause, the reason behind his suffering, without knowing all that Job or God knew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The one in mourning who does not feel blessed at all, it does not feel like a blessing. You can take Jesus at his word, that there is blessing for you. 
The reasons why God allowed Job to suffer was not as important as seeking the Lord, who is the source of all comfort, all peace, healing, and hope. Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrow and grief. Remember his tears that he shed for his friend out of love for him, Lazarus, when he had died from an illness and he arrived in Bethany. He didn't joyfully go to the tomb, skipping as he went, singing happy songs. It says he, when he appro approached the tomb, he wept and he groaned within himself because he loved him. He was his friend. And Jesus taught in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Having placed our faith in Jesus and been born again, we are now his friends. He cares for us just as deeply as he did for Lazarus, his friend. He went to Bethany. He consoled Mary and Martha. He went to the tomb. He allowed Lazarus to die so that he could rise from the dead. Now, Mary and Martha, they wanted Jesus to prevent his death. They wanted him to heal him so that he is well and he, they wouldn't have to grieve his passing. But God in his wisdom, he allowed that adversity so that four days later in raising him from the dead, he would show others that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And many seeing that would believe and live forever. Like they could not have known that he had such redemptive purposes in that illness and death. That just seemed awful. And it was, it was terrible. That's why Jesus wept. But Jesus is the resurrection of life and he gives us such hope. The disciples, they mourned the death of Jesus. They had no idea that through Jesus' death on the cross, that brutal slaying on Calvary, that he was making a way for all Jews and Gentiles who believe in him to be born again, to be forgiven and have eternal life with him. Only God can redeem that adversity and death he allowed for his good purposes. Blessed are those who mourn because they will receive comfort. Like that song, Our God is Mercy by Brenton Brown. It says, you're blessed if you've been torn apart. You're blessed if you have a broken heart because hope is waiting at the door. Salvation's near. There are times when God does reveal to those who suffer the reason for their affliction. He did this to Joseph after he was sold as a slave in Egypt by his own brothers. Remember, he was accused of rape. He went to prison. He was there for years. But he was brought out of that prison to save many people alive. God showed him that. But he didn't know that when he was in the prison, when he was going through that grief and suffering. It was, it was decade later that he realized what God was doing. Paul, he shared with believers in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul, other believers, they were burdened, they were afflicted. To the end that they would not trust in themselves, they would learn this, not to trust themselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, it may be that you will never know the reason why you have suffered such adversity, why this was given to you by the Lord. But 
Will you be like Job who received it from the Lord's hand and hold fast to his integrity? Or will you be one who curses God and throws aside faith? Job blessed the Lord when he grieved over the loss of everything, even when he suffered from this incurable, untreatable physical illness. Praise the Lord for his compassion, for his mercy to redeem and save us out of all trouble. Our good God who saves us and who wants us to learn to trust him. So receive that from the Lord. Think of his goodness, consider his wisdom, and let's rest in the knowledge of his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you, you speak the things that we need to hear. Even though they be difficult subjects and uh, beyond words, Lord, how people suffer. Thank you that you are able to redeem that for good because you are good. And that your plans are good in all things. That even the things that seem evil, you are able to redeem for your glory. And the things that we cannot explain and that makes no sense to us, you can work and you can refine and you can bring healing to the brokenness that we don't even know that we have. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God, that you are full of mercy, that you are the one who upholds us, the one who says, come, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. And thank you that we can do that. We can draw near to you even now in faith. When, when the world is saying, curse God, we can come to you and bless you and thank you and receive even adversity from your hand because you are good and we trust you. I pray that our faith would increase, Lord, and that we would comfort those who mourn, that we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, and that we would uh, be compassionate and merciful. Thank you, God, again for this passage, for Job's example and his testimony. And I pray that we would uh, walk as righteously as he did. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.